you would think that the guy with no beard would have, like, be totally fine with the microphone. But, uh, so, if you have your copy of the scriptures, or if you want to turn it on, I want to invite you to do that. Go to Romans chapter 8, okay? Romans chapter 8. And we're going to be in verses 31 through 39. And what I would tell you is, I think this is the section of scripture that Pastor Eric's been using at the end of all the services during our series in Life in the Spirit. This is actually the climactic end um, that Paul is writing in this chapter. And so I want to encourage you to be there. If you're at home with us, I'm so glad you're with us. And so I encourage you to open your copy of the scriptures as well. And as we do that, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Like we do this every week, and this can become a routine, so I want to just make sure that you remember that it's not a routine for us to just stand. We stand because we know that this Word of God is living and active. It penetrates the soul, and it has the power to transform. And so we read it knowing that these are the words from God to us, His servants. So starting in verse 31, it says this, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, I ask, that the words that come from my mouth would be the words that you want to speak, not only to those of us here and that are watching online, but that they would be the words that you want to speak to myself. I pray that your word would transform our hearts, would remind us this morning that we would leave here remembering the goodness of your love and your word. So lead us in that as we worship through reading and looking at your word. It's your name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So since the introduction of the small picture-driven smartphone, we've seen something change in society. There's actually been something that is happening in society that's impacting all of us, even if some of us still have a flip phone. It's, it's impacting our lives, and this is what is happening. In fact, it's 
been going on and there are people that are doing studies on what this smartphone is doing to us and to our lives. And what is happening is that we are seeing more and more distracted drivers. See, the smartphone uh, came in and so we, we have this going on. They're, they're doing studies and watching the impact that the phone has on our driving and on our minds. I don't know if you realize this, but whenever you're driving, if you are driving and you look at a text message or you try to send a text message while you're driving, you are basically looking away from the road uh, on an average nearly five seconds. And you might be going, well, that's not that bad. Five seconds isn't a long time. But here's what that really goes to. It's like you are driving the length of a football field going 55 miles an hour in that time frame. So what we are seeing is that there are these accidents and crashes that are happening because of the smartphone and people feeling like they need to react to that message that has come in. 70% of people say that they have sent a text message while driving. And so I want to see from a show of hands, who is that? I got to admit, it's me, okay? I've done it. 70% say that they've done that knowing that there is a higher risk of an accident when you do that. As the studies have gone on to look at people, what they've realized is that there's three types of distractions that are happening to individuals in the car. The first type of distraction is the cognitive distraction. The cognitive distraction is when you deal with, with your phone and you're taking your mind off the thing that you should be focused on. So that is a cognitive distraction. Then there's the visual distraction. Well, that's obvious. It means you're taking your eyes off the place that you are supposed to be. So there's the cognitive and the visual, but then there's also the manual distraction, meaning that every time you go to your phone, you are taking a hand off the steering wheel and putting it on something else. And in the midst of the cognitive and the, the visual and the manual, what is happening is it is impacting everything that is going on, impacting the focus. And you might be saying, why did you read Romans 8 and now you're talking about cell phones? Here's why. See, the cognitive and the visual and the manual distraction happens to you, the believer. It happens to me, the believer. In fact, whenever we read this, uh, whether we like it or not, as Christians, we're going to be thrown distractions or what I want to look at as adversity into our lives. And so they can come in and they can take on many different forms. And so like your phone, they are going to go after those areas, the mental, the visual, the manual. They're going to go after those things. And whenever we allow those distractions and adversity to gain power, they're going to wreak havoc on your faith. When your focus is somewhere else, it's going to wreak havoc on your faith. And so Paul writes this section to remind us. So this morning, my prayer is that as we look at this text, that this is a reminder to you 
that those distractions, the adversity that is in your life, actually has no power over you because of what Paul says here. In fact, what I, I want you to see is as we read this, there's actually a, a main principle that I think comes out of this text, and it's simply this. When adversity hits, remembering who you belong to will direct your steps. See, when adversity hits, remembering who you belong to will direct your steps. That's why Paul is reminding us of all the truth in these nine verses. So let's look at what Paul is doing. See, when Paul is in this section, when he's writing this, he's not trying to just give you, the reader, me, the reader, information. Think about when you were in school. For some of you, you're in school right now. The teachers that give you just information, that information doesn't necessarily stick to your life and, and change your life. But the classes that you're in, when that teacher goes and it dives in and creates that passion and starts connecting everything you're learning to your life, and how it's going to impact your life, all of a sudden it takes on this new, new conviction. You actually end up loving that subject. Well, that's what Paul is doing here. He's being a teacher, and he is diving in with us as, as his class, and he's saying, I want you to get this to stick to your life. I want you to understand this truth. And so he does it in, a, in an incredible way. Instead of, this is the Apostle Paul, you would think that he could just tell us the way it needs to be. But what he ends up doing is he is uh, actually trying to persuade the reader. It was very key for his time. And when I say persuade, he's saying, I want you to see this truth, that this truth is so alive that it just captivates you. And so he starts by asking questions. And the reason he asks the questions, and what happens is we can read through this really quick, quickly, but he asks the questions so that we will start thinking with our mind, what is the truth behind what he is saying? Because Paul knows that the gospel transforms, and he wants that to take root. So what he does is he ends up asking five questions. And each question has to do with a fear. It's actually a fear that all of us in this room and whoever's watching online, it's exactly the fears that we have. So I want to look at the, the five areas of fear that Paul is dealing with, starting with this one. He asks this question in verse 31 and deals with the fear of opposition. Look at what verse 31 says. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, what he's doing in starting this, in verse 31, it's the climactic end, not to just Romans 8. It's actually an entire section that he wrote of Romans 5 through 8. This is his end. And when you get to chapter 9 of Romans, he ends up changing his content, the subject of his content, and goes a little bit of a different direction. But here, this is the end of everything where he's talked about us being adopted and justified and, and all of these things. And now he is wanting us to focus in and he's saying, who can be against us? Because that moves us to celebrate and to worship God well because of the work and the love that he pours out on us. So he begins 
with the fear of opposition, this fear that we all have. Here's the thing. Some of you are watching online right now, and some of you are sitting in this room, and you're going, Phil, you have no idea the opposition in my life right now. You've come in, and and you've kind of sat down for Sunday, and you are weary because there are painful oppositions in your life, and you fear them. You hate them. You don't like it. And you're saying, you're telling me that Paul is saying that we shouldn't have any fear of opposition? And I'm saying, yes. The scriptures tell us all the way through that even as a Christian, just because you have a relationship with Jesus doesn't mean you're never going to have opposition. In fact, when you surrender your life to Christ, you might have more opposition. And so he's saying, look, opposition is going to come, but the truth of the matter is that We will have the opposition, but the opposition cannot tear us away or block the blessings and the promises that God has towards us. So whenever we're looking at this, this is what we have to understand. This is so important. We fear opposition because it's not comfortable. And all of us here love comfort. We fear opposition Uh, Because it's not fun. It's not joyful. It it doesn't feel good. And because it doesn't feel good, we, we, we like hide from it. And when fear of opposition starts to win, we forget the promises of God. We are distracted. It impacts our cognitive, our visual, and our manual. So when we look at this then, you have to understand, your struggles might seem enormous. They might be enormous. They might be heartbreaking and really, really tough, but the opposition might be large, but the God that we worship, the God that is behind you, the believer, is much bigger. Paul's saying, who can be against us? This is a man that has written, who has been beaten and persecuted, and he's saying, who can be against us? God is behind us. See, if if you this morning want to rid yourself of the fear of opposition, the way that that fear is removed from your life is to cling and believe the promises of God. A God who has walked through the fear of opposition and he's conquered it. What's interesting is if you jump back to the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, you see just beautifully written pieces from King David. And in Psalm 23, David ends up writing these these words, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. These are fascinating words. And I'm sure that some of you have experienced the dark valley. Some of you are in the dark valley right now. Some of you are going to experience it at some point. This dark valley is going to come. I know I have experienced it. But what's interesting is that David does not write in Psalm 23, when you see the dark valley, turn and run the other direction. He doesn't say that. What we find is that in Psalm 23 and in Romans 8, David and Paul are reminding us that you and I 
can actually live in the dark valley for a little while. We can actually be present in the valley for a little while because the one who is behind us is the one that brings light and hope and strength and truth. The one that is behind us brings the ability to overcome the darkness. And so the reason that we have to to rid ourselves or to look to God for strength of of releasing this fear of opposition is because Jesus has come and he has defeated and overcome that fear. And he wants that for you and me. See, if you were with us or worshiping online and you were singing all these songs and you, you say, I believe every word that we sang, then you will believe that your God is bigger than that fear of opposition. So Paul deals with that first because he knows we're all going to have it. So he deals with that, and then he goes on to the next fear, and it's the fear of unmet needs. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? See, this is a verse that has to do with value. When, when you think of value, I, you can think of this verse a little bit. This is what I mean by value. I, I love the game of golf. And I know that for some of you, it's boring, you can't stand it, and that's something you have to deal with in your life. But I love it. In fact, I, I will watch it on TV. Whenever there's a tournament in the Chicago area, I have bought tickets In my home, in my home office, and in my kids' bedrooms, we have uh, these pin flags that are on the wall full of of autographs from some of the top players because we sat at the tournaments and waited for these autographs to to come. We wanted to see them. We love it. In fact, one time we were there, my daughter was young, and um, she was waiting for these autographs, and this player comes out, makes a beeline, right to the the area that she's in. And all these hands are reaching out for this ball that he's going to give. And as they're reaching out, he kind of moves his hand through all of those other hands and sees my daughter and says, this is for you. Bryson DeChambeau is the player that did it. He's now a major championship uh, winner. And so that ball, that autograph ball, is in a small case on a shelf in my daughter's room. Now, if I came this morning and I said to you, I'd be willing to sell you that ball for $250. Do you want it? I'm not doing it. Don't worry, babe, okay? Some of you are going to laugh at me and go, why would I want to spend that money on a stupid golf ball? Yeah. (laughs) And here's the deal. The reason is because that ball has no value to you. But that ball has a lot of value to us. There is value given to it because of how we enjoyed it. And here's what we need need to understand is this, is that value is often given. It's often given to something or to someone by what someone is willing to give or do for it. See, that's where value comes. 
So here's what I want you to understand with unmet needs. What is the value of your life? See, I might not know you, but I know the value of your life. Your life is incredibly valuable because God was willing to give up his most prized, loving possession, his son, Jesus Christ. He gave him up for you, for me. And he was willing to do this because he saw value in you. He sees you as valuable. Now here's the thing. We can often celebrate it. You know, at at Easter we celebrate that God sent his son and, and Jesus came and he died and he rose from the grave and we celebrate that. And then the rest of the year we sit here and we struggle thinking, will God really meet our needs? Here's the thing. If you think that, here's the problem. You often are thinking that God should be meeting your wants instead of him meeting your needs. And so we have this fear of these unmet needs. And so what I want to do is I want to ask you some questions. Why would God give up this value of his son for you and never meet your needs? Why would he give up that value? Why would he rescue you from the painfulness of sin and not give you help in the midst of your struggling relationships? Why would he give you the Holy Spirit to lead you and, and give you wisdom, but then not give you wisdom in the, for you to navigate all the bumps in your life? Why would he do that? He wouldn't. He wants to meet your needs. See, when you look at Scripture, if you go through all of Scripture, you're going to see that writers end up uh, declaring some things about God, describing God in different ways, And what you find the writer saying is things like this. God is a compassionate shepherd. God is a loving husband. God is a loving father. God is the king of kings. And the descriptions could go on and on and on. See, when we hear that, if that's what God is, why do we question and fear that he won't meet your needs. Paul is telling us you don't have to fear that your needs won't be met because God gave up his most valuable possession to meet every need you have, including the most important, to reunite you with God the Father. He wants to meet those needs. In fact, there's this, uh, I want to teach you Hebrew today. There's this really cool title for God. And it's this. It's Jehovah Jireh. Meaning the God who provides. See, if this is how he he is, this is how he's described, he wants to wipe your fears of unmet needs away and provide for you because you are his child. Friends, when adversity hits, remembering who you belong to will direct your steps. So he deals with these fear of opposition, the fear of unmet needs, and then he goes to this really interesting fear, the fear of approval. It's found in verse 33. He says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God 
who justifies. So he asks that question to start drawing us in. And what we have to think about is who will bring a charge? When we have charges or when somebody says something against you, it ends up impacting you and we quickly feel like we are not approved of. Here's the deal. I want to be approved of in the eyes of my peers often. We all have that sense of, of, of wanting that. In fact, our country deals with it. Every president deals with the approval rating. I'm, I started thinking about that. I'm like, praise God that there is not an approval rating on me every week. But we deal with this. We all uh, want to be approved of. And we want to be approved of so badly and that when those around us don't approve of us, it's a crushing blow. So Paul goes there and he's asking, why fear approval? So here's the deal. For some of you, you're sitting in this room or you're sitting at home and, and you're looking at things and you're struggling with this massive sense uh, or struggle of inadequacy. You're feeling it. You've heard words shared, maybe these voices from your childhood. Maybe it's the voice of your boss or the voice of your spouse. Maybe it's the voice of so-called friends, or maybe it's just your voice in your mind. And you, uh, you are struggling with this sense of inadequacy, and you could read this verse over and over again, and you would be like, I read this every day, but it never goes away. Why? See, the, the reality is that the way you will overcome this, this fear is that this fear of approval is that you will cling to the truth that you don't have to be approved by everyone else. You are approved by the Heavenly Father, the one that created everything. And if he has approved of you, then why do you worry about who isn't approving of you? He thought so highly of you that he sent his son here. His purposes for your life are actually greater than the purposes of your peers. And so we have this fear. So the charges may come, but remember that your identity is found in the eyes of God. How he sees you, not how anybody else sees you. And so if this is where you're struggling, if this is one of your greatest fears, I want you to pray this morning. I want you to take time to, to just settle somewhere quiet this afternoon and you pray that God would help reestablish in your life that his approval is all you need and it's the most, and the most important approval in your life. You are adequate. You are valuable. Because of the God who looks upon you. So he deals with this fear of approval and he jumps right into this next fear. And they're, they're closely tied, but it's the, the fear of guilt. See, in verse 34, he says, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also 
interceding for us. So I got to tell you, um, I'm going to confess this. I have stood before a judge two times when I was a teenager and one time as an adult. I've had to stand before a judge. And it's because there are just times that I feel like I should drive faster than everybody else on the face of the earth. And so I've had to stand in front of this judge. And I, I want you to picture this, that I go before the judge and I'm standing there and the clerks, they read the charges against me and the judge looks at me, looks into my eyes and says, Phil, I see you for who you are. And so what I'm doing today is I am wiping these charges away from you. I'm actually going to pay your fine. And I'm going to take what should be on your record and put it on my record. And I'm going to take this and you can go and you're free. Free to go about your day. Now if that happened, that would be the freakiest situation ever with a judge. But that's exactly what Paul's reminding us of here. See, Paul's looking at this and, and he's saying, look, Jesus has been given authority. Look at where he sits. He sits at the right hand of God. He's been, he is the judge that has the authority to bring judgment. And just like me in front of a judge, all of us will be standing at some point before Jesus who has been given authority to judge over our lives. Now here's the kicker. The judge was also the one who bore my penalty. See, the judge was also the one who was my sacrifice. The judge is also the one who gave up himself, died, was buried, and was raised to life to conquer death. The judge is also the one who went to Thomas in John 20 and said, you don't believe it's me? Look at my hands, feel my scars. He is the one that has bore the scars and said, I'm going to make judgment here, but I was also the sacrifice. Now here's why this is uh, so important. If as the judge, he ends up saying, you are guilty, what he is saying is, the work that he did on the cross and the grave wasn't worth anything. So the judge can't say that. The judge has to say, you are worthy, you are free from guilt. And so he declares that as his child, you are free from the, the evilness of guilt. Now it doesn't mean that we go on sinning because we know this. What it means is that we have to understand what that forgiveness is all about and what it costs God the Father. But for those of you in this room that continue to beat yourself down, if you're online and you continue to beat yourself down with sin that you've confessed to God and you can't forgive yourself, what you have to understand is that when you can't forgive yourself, what you're saying is that your forgiveness is more important than the judge's. And so Paul's reminding us, free from guilt. We have a God who is not a God of fear, but he is a God of freedom. So he deals with those first four, and then 
of fears, and then Paul goes to the last fear, and it's the fear of insecurity. You see it in verse 35. Look at what he says. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now here's what's interesting. In the first four, Paul deals with those fears kind of like from a judicial aspect, from like a very legal uh, aspect of things. He looks at it through like a legal format, and then he gets to this last one, and he's dealing with something totally different. And he's looking at the fear of insecurity, and he's saying, here, our fear is dealt with by the love of God. He takes this turn. See, sometimes what we have to understand and, and remember is love is not just an emotion. It's not just a feeling. It's an action. It's a commitment. It's a covenant. It's a promise. And so sometimes in dealing with our fears, we can look at the first four fears and go, man, it's nice uh, that God deals with those that way. And and it might seem distant, but what Paul is wanting to do is he's wanting to anchor us and say, this has to do with the love of Jesus, and the love of Jesus brings security. It brings security. It can never be broken. It can never be torn from you. See, because of the perfect love of Jesus, no one, not one individual in this world, not one situation, not one season of life can tear you away from it. What he is saying is the love of Jesus is a once and for all. It's like when you go to a wedding and you hear the husband and the wife make the vows to one another. They are making a covenant relationship. And Paul is saying the love of Jesus is a covenant relationship to you and to me. See, Paul is taking us back to the reality that the who that is trying to separate you can't because the who that loves you has conquered all things. Now, when we look at this, what's interesting is you see that he ends up saying right at the beginning, who shall separate, meaning a person. But then look at the examples he gives. Trouble, hardship, famine, nakedness. He doesn't list a name there. What he lists, and, and why he doesn't list a name, is because of this. Every one of those things, when they come into our life, they are so strong that they might not be a person, but they feel like there is an individual standing right in front of you doing it to you. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Who? No one can rip that love away. See, when adversity hits, remembering who you belong to will direct your steps. Pastor J.D. Greer says it this way, the who of your salvation is greater than the who of your opposition. And he transforms the opposition into the servants of his purpose. See, those things that are hard, those things that are coming in, God's saying to the evil one, you want to use those to crush my child, but I'm going to use those to strengthen my child. I'm going to transform my child, and those things are going to serve me, not you. God has won. 
So then we look at this beautiful climactic ending, and Paul does this. He ends up saying, he, he puts in Psalm 44, this verse from Psalm 44, and he kind of answers what's going to happen to it. Look at what it says. It says, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's from Psalm 44. It's written during a time that the nation of Israel was feeling like God had turned away from them, had turned his face from them. They weren't living for the Lord. They were in the dark valley, and they were saying, this is what we feel like. And so Paul inserts that, and then he says this. He says, no, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the call. Nothing anywhere in all the universe will ever be able to separate. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes for a second. And I want you to think, of the five fears, what is the one that is invading your life right now? It might be in the form of a person or a situation, a season that you're going through, whatever it is. I want you to picture it, and then I want you to picture a hand being extended to you. That hand has a scar in the middle of it. And the voice is saying, give it to me. Give it to me. Because remember, nothing in this world can rip you from my love, from the work that I have done. Your adversity doesn't define you. Your situation doesn't define you. You were chosen by God and you were rescued from your sin. And God has declared you his child if you call him Lord. Because when adversity hits, remembering who you belong to will direct your steps so that the work and love of Christ will be glorified. Amen? Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts, that you would move in our lives, that we would see the beauty of this climactic end that Paul is writing, that nothing can separate us. Nothing will separate us from your love. And I pray, Lord, that today, in whatever situation we might be in, that we would see the scars in your hand, the work that you did being extended to us and saying, give it over. It's done. I pray for those who are struggling in this moment. 
may they realize that the words that Paul has written here is a celebration of freedom. And I ask that you would transform each and every one of us. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.